Good morning, afternoon, and evening. Welcome to the 8311 Cast, your premier Midwestern-based sports podcast, bringing you all things sports to your beautiful ears. Join your hosts, Kyle Mersch, Mike Ludwig, and Wyatt Teeter as we talk to you about college football, college basketball, the MLB, and of course, our signature segments, The Vault of Hilarious Contracts, your weekly turtle tab, Mike's Stupid Rules, and Write That Down Predictions, right here on episode 95. Big shout out to Nathan Brown. Nathan Brown is the head coach of a team that is guaranteed to have more wins than any team in the Big Twin or Pac-12 for this fall 2020 football season. That team is the Central Arkansas Bears, Division One FCS football team. How amazing is that? Like, what a feat. You know, they are going to have more wins than any of those teams in the Big 12. Big 10 or Pac-12. Oh, Lord, not the Big 12. That'd be bad. That would be bad if every bit. That would be impossible. Yeah. I mean, unless the Big 12 canceled their season. <laughs> I mean, but before, yeah. As of now, it looks impossible. Yeah, I agree. Because as of right now, we are still rolling straight towards the Cyclone football opener against the University of Louisiana Raging Cajuns. That game is scheduled for September 12th. Um, in Jack Trice Stadium. Game time is still TBD, um, but I assume they're going to work on that here in the near future and get that out. I kind of expected it here sometime this last weekend, two well, weeks yeah, before the game. Some, some media or television is going to, like television stations going to pick that game up, you would think. I mean, they have 40% less games than they would have in a normal season, so I presume they're going to pick up every game they can find. Yep. So, if not more than 40% less games without the Big Ten and Pac-12. So I presume, you know, ESPN and Fox and whatnot are fighting over who gets one of these games, and once they figure that out, we'll let you know the um, TV network and the kickoff time for that game. But I would expect something in the uh, early afternoon. I'd expect an afternoon kickoff. I don't expect a night game. But we'll see. Who knows? We will see. All the marquee matchups that were supposed to be this next week is uh, were canceled because, you know, most teams aren't playing non-conference games. So there aren't a ton of marquee matchups out there. But the other news today from uh, that Iowa State football related is that Jamie Pollard announced the official plan for spectators at these first um Iowa State games. This, so this just applies to this first game. Um, there will be 20,000, 25,000, sorry, 25,000 fans allowed in Jack Trice Stadium um, for that first home game. And basically it came with the threat of if you don't follow our protocols, that number will be zero at the next game. There will be, it will either be 25,000 or zero for the year is basically what he made it sound like. And that depends on... Um, how um, the fans will adhere to the protocols and that um, things that include um, no tailgating at all. You're not even allowed to put up things that make it look like tailgating, like grills in the parking lots will not be allowed. If you have a grill in the parking lot, they're going to kick you out and send you home. Grills, tents, tables, chairs, etc., all not allowed in the parking lot this year. Masks everywhere required in the stadium at all times, even if you are in your seat. Um, um, basically just things like that. So, 
And if you want a list of those full protocols, um, I'm sure you can find it on the Athletics website if, in case you are planning to go to one of those games. Make sure you follow the protocols because Jack Choi Stadium is a much better place to be when there are fans there, and that would give Iowa State a much better home field advantage if there are fans in the stands. So if you go into those games, go ahead and obey those, go ahead and obey those protocols so we can keep, keep going to the games. Like, I don't care where you stand on whether they're necessary or not. And that's what Jamie Pollard said, too. Some of some people are going to think that that's not enough. And some people are going to think that that's too much. He doesn't care. Do what you're told so fans can keep showing up, is basically what, what he said. And I would echo that. We want fans at Jack Trice Stadium for these games. It would make the atmosphere much better. So the other thing Jamie Pollard tried to sneak by, I don't know if he was like intentionally trying to sneak this all by us today, but like he had a you know a letter to Iowa State fans about all these um, changes for Jack Choi Stadium, and then at the end it was like, "P.S. Quick note about our budget." And you know, I'd clink a link and go to a PDF that was somewhere else. So I was like, "You trying to slide this past us, Jamie? You didn't get past me, and now it's on a podcast, so it didn't get past anybody now." Um, Basically, what he said is um, that as of right now, with the assumptions the athletic department is going on, the athletic department is facing a $17.5 million uh, budget shortfall from what it um, projected. Now, those assumptions that it's taking into account is that um, there will be a – the Big 12 will play its full 10-game season as far as TV revenue is concerned for that. Um, and there will be 25,000 fans at each of those home games. Um, it's assuming that the winter sports season, so basically basketball, um, will be a delayed start but not canceled so that there will be less TV revenue but still some. And I assume this would definitely include still having an NCAA tournament this year and Big 12 tournament because that's a ton of media revenue. Um, it also assumed no fans at any winter sport. Um, for this year as part of the budget. So they're already not planning on any ticket revenue for winter sports. Um, let's see. Those were the major assumptions that I got out of it. Um, and he said with that um, budget shortfall, they're planning a few more uh, salary reductions and stuff in the athletic department, but they are not planning any layoffs and they are not planning on cutting any sports at the moment. Now, if any of those assumptions turn out worse financially than what I just said, he said that those options are not off the table, but assuming that we can play this full mod, this full modified football season in the Big 12, and there's an NCAA basketball tournament this year, it sounds like all the varsity sports at Iowa State are going to be safe. Um, they plan to use some of their reserve funds that they've been saving up here over the last five, ten years to weather that, weather much of that budget shortfall. So. The Iowa State Athletic Department is obviously that's not a good number to be that far short on your budget, but it's a lot better than many, many universities are at right now, especially in the Big Ten and Pac-12 with no football. So props to Jamie Pollard for keeping the athletic department where it needs to be going to keep it going and not have to be cutting any sports. So good for Speaking him. about football and the Big Ten real quick, it was actually announced today uh, that Jamie Pollard and the athletic director for the University of Iowa have decided that the Seahawks game will be played in Ames next season. They won't end up 
going back to Iowa City next year as it was scheduled to have been uh, this season. So that alternating schedule will stay on track in the coming years. Okay, so Iowa State will continue to get the odd odd years and Iowa gets the even years for home games? Okay, that's a good note. Yeah, and another big note in Cyclone news today. Uh, This time we go to the hardwood. Uh, It was just announced today that uh, the transfer Tyler Harris uh, was granted immediate eligibility. He transferred from Memphis uh, this year. So Iowa State has, Iowa State and Steve Prohm has effectively found their starting point guard uh, for the 2020 season, assuming that 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 season uh, is able to be played. This is this is huge news for the Cyclones. Or originally, we were all planning that he would probably have to sit out potentially, uh, but he is a huge scoring threat, and he is one that the Cyclones did uh, recruit in that Tyrese Halliburton recruiting cycle, the year that they got Halliburton, Condit, uh, Horton Tucker, and Griffin, um, which the only person left now is uh, Condit. So... It'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out as a as the Cyclones continue to rebuild in basketball. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that season comes out. It's always big to get these eligibility waivers. You've heard me go on rants about these eligibility waivers before. The NCAA seems to have no rhyme or reason why they hand these out to certain people and not to others. So it doesn't mean why he got one. No idea. The NCAA likes him. That's the best I can that's the best I can give you. Because there's no rhyme or reason I can figure out why some people get them and some don't. So and that's, it's good news for the Cyclones. That's what happened to Rajir Bolton last season. He got an immediate um, eligibility. He was granted immediate eligibility for the Cyclones. Why yeah. he got it, who knows? Yeah, but you know? two years ago, Marcus Carr at Minnesota didn't get one. Nobody knows why. Like 90% of players who asked for one that year got one, and Marcus Carr didn't. And nobody knows why. Nobody, the NCAA never said why his case was different than most of the other ones that he didn't get at. The NCAA needs more transparency in that waiver protocol. Anyway, we can talk more about that, that another yeah, time. That is that, not uh, the point of topic, this episode. That is a topic for another day. Because today, August 31st, was the MLB trade deadline. And... Boy, what the the couple hours leading up to the trade deadline was crazy, and there uh, and obviously this was going to be a crazy uh, trade deadline anyway. We talked about this before. Uh, we were trying to maybe figure out who actually values uh, the World Series this year and who thinks that you know in the midst of a pandemic still happening, who is willing to bet that this season will be played out in full. And we saw one team dive headfirst into trade galore. Uh, not even, not just this weekend, not or not just today, but this weekend. The San Diego Padres were the biggest movers uh, at the trade deadline as they completed five trades uh, over, over the past four days. And one of them was the biggest blockbuster of the day on Monday, August 31st. Just a rundown, they traded with Kansas City for Trevor Rosenthal, uh, who had a great bounce back year. Uh, They got Mitch Moreland from the Red Sox, a huge pickup for them to be their DH bat. 
uh, possibly sub in at first base when Eric Cosmer has a night off. Uh, the Padres also added two catchers in Castro, who they got Jason Castro, who they got from the Angels, as well as Austin Nola from the Mariners. And then they create they finished their spree by getting the biggest uh, starting pitcher on the market, arguably, in Mike Clevenger from the Cleveland Indians. This was part of a nine-player deal that sent three players to San Diego, including Mike Clevenger, and six players went to Cleveland in that deal. Uh, Some of the other big names to be moving around uh, to different teams, Mike Miner, uh, is was swapped to Oakland uh, as Oakland was in need of extra pitching help. Um, let's see. Uh, all, former All-Star Tommy LaStella uh, was traded to the A's as well as the A's are trying to make a uh, move in their division and right now stay ahead of Houston. Uh, the White Sox added speed with the uh, pickup of Gerard Dyson. Um, as the White Sox are starting to heat up recently. And the Blue Jays, in my opinion, were the team that surprised me as being the biggest buyers at the trade deadline. Uh, They added a ton of pitching, uh, including Robbie Ray uh, from the Diamondbacks, as well as, uh, what's what's that guy's name? Um, Taylor Walker and Ross Stripling. They the Blue Jays traded for three starting pitchers at yes. the trade deadline. Yeah, Mike got it. Uh, which, that surprised... Three starting pitchers is a lot of starting pitchers to trade for at the, uh, at the, at the same trade deadline. So especially, little... especially for a team that's third in their division behind the Tampa Bay Rays, which are hot right now, and the New York Yankees, who have been sliding. They're 3-7 and seven over their last 10, uh, but Toronto has recently or since the beginning of August, has been a very competitive ball uh, ball team. They're 6-4 and four over their last 10. Uh, but right now, Tampa Bay... Tampa Bay didn't make many moves, but they're sitting pretty comfortable in that division right now. I say comfortable loosely, as we've seen a lot of those leads in divisions dwindle over the past couple of days. But the Blue Jays were a surprise to me. Yeah, and frankly, I'm surprised... Well, so the thing that surprised me was, I guess this shouldn't have come at a surprise, right? So if our listeners weren't aware, so there was a, a rule as part of this year, this season, that no player who wasn't on a team's uh, 60-man player pool between their major league roster and the alternative site, rule that no player not in the 60-man player pool could get traded this year unless they were traded as a player to be named later. P-T-B-N-L, player to be named later. Um, so the thing that surprised me, but probably should never, was the amount of near major league ready prospects that changed hands today. Like, so in, in, that, in that Clevenger trade, right, San Diego sent um, three, or they sent six players there, three prospects um, and three um, players already in the major leagues. So they sent their number seven prospect, their number nine prospect, and their number 11 prospect to Cleveland, all of which were are projected to make their major league debut either this year or next year. Or already, one of them had already made his major league debut mm-hmm. this year. Yep. 
Plus, they traded for a pitcher that was already play, pitching for San Diego this year, an infielder that was already, or an outfielder that was already playing for uh, San Diego this year, and they traded their one of their catchers, one of their starting catchers, Austin Hedges, who's a, probably about a four or five year veteran of the of the league, one of the best defensive catchers in baseball. Um, got traded to Cleveland as part of that deal. Just a lot of major league ready players swap, switch, uh, swapping teams today, which you really don't see at the trade deadline very often. So you also saw that the asking price for players that were under team control for more than one year, like Mike Clevenger's, were really kind of high. So the Twins were, you know, kicking the tires on a lot of different, you know, maybe a fourth outfielder, a relief pitcher, or a starter, right? And basically the Twins were, were told if they want somebody who's going to be under team control for 2021 as well, that it would take one of the Twins' top three prospects, all of which are top 80 prospects in, in all of baseball. Um, so the price was pretty steep to uh, get somebody um, who was under team control for multiple years this year. Having probably just having to do with the the lack of sellers um, in this market, so a lot of interesting moves today. As I talked about, I think this was last week on the podcast. You can't judge baseball trades right when they're made. I mean, this year you'll probably be able to judge them quicker than you would in normal years, but gut reactions on baseball trades usually aren't good. So it's interesting to analyze how they affect this year. But as far as doing win-loss on a trade, I don't like to do that for another couple of years. So I'm not gonna, I am not gonna play that game here today. The one, the one team that you might, the one trade you might be able to look at and say, and actually value at the end of this season was that Mike Clevenger deal, right? Because you're going to see almost immediately in Cleveland, possibly three of those prospects right away is they're all predicted to be added to their active roster and join the club upon arrival. Um, but you're right. You still have to wait and see what the value of those other three prospects are. Yes, you did get six prospects for three players, um, but one of those players is a, is your ace. Well, not your ace, because Shane Bieber has been absolutely nothing short of spectacular this mm-hmm. season. But Mike Clevenger is that one-two punch right behind him. Although Mike Clevenger did have some clubhouse issues regarding an incident that happened earlier this season. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a lot of players might not have wanted to see him around any longer, but you're giving up a possible ace in a rotation for a bunch of question marks you could put. So, yeah. Yep. But it'll be interesting to see uh, how this affects some of the playoff races because we have less than a month to go until the playoffs here. Most teams are sitting in the neighborhood of, oh boy, what, 27, 25, 20, somewhere between 23 and 30 games left for most teams, um, depending on how many games you've had postponed for various reasons this year at Cardinals. Yeah, between Um, – it looks – I'm looking at the standings right now between 24 and 27 games left for the majority of the league. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely coming down the home stretch here. Um, So keep an eye out on those standings as they will keep changing every day. Um, Some of the big changes this week um, happened in the AL Central. Um, 
Minnesota decided they didn't want to play baseball the second half of this week. They managed only six runs in three games uh, in Detroit over the weekend, um, getting swept by the lowly Tigers, and that sent the Twins from uh, a three-way tie to first place to being a game and a half behind uh, the White Sox and Indians, who are now tied for first in the AL Central. Speaking of the White Sox, they caught fire last week. They are now 8-2. and two. They are absolutely hitting the cover off the ball. They now have the second-best run differential in baseball. Granted, it's still, you know, years behind the Dodgers. But the second-best run differential in baseball it was the Twins two, one or two weeks ago is now the White Sox. Um, they hit 52 home runs in August alone, which is absolutely insane. They're yeah. hitting lots of bombs this year. Yeah. And they also decided to mix a no-hitter in there. Lucas Giolito earlier uh, this week threw the first no-hitter of this um, this shortened season when he no-hit. I mean, granted, it was the Pirates that he no-hit. So, you know, they're bad. They're really, really bad. But, but still, he, a no-hitter. He, he almost lost that no-hitter, though, on the last out of the game. It was a sinking line drive into right field, and Adam Engel had to make a pretty good catch in order to save the no hitter. Mm -hmm. Um, But anytime a pitcher throws a no hitter being that consistent over nine innings is impressive. It doesn't matter if you're the pirates or maybe it might look a little different if you no hit the rays or the Dodgers this season, but or the white Sox, or yeah, or your own team. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the White Sox were charging up the AL, uh, the AL Central standings with the eight and two in their last ten. Um, the other standings observation is, man, the NL looks bad outside of those top teams, right? So the Cubs, Dodgers, and Padres are all pretty good, but then after that, I mean, the Braves are okay, but those are the only four teams in the NL above five hundred right and now. And the Braves, the Braves aren't even really in that great of a situation either. They I mean, yes, they are. They're sitting at 19 and 14. They're six and four over their last 10, but they have been absolutely ravaged in pitching recently. Their their starting rotation has had has been riddled with injuries, including one of their uh, top uh, arms out for the season. Um, then you also look; their bullpen has been ravaged. They didn't make that many uh, moves at the trade deadline, besides trading for one pit. I, one big name pitcher uh, from the Orioles that they got to try and help salvage their starting rotation. But the East is bad. Then you got Miami who hasn't really, they didn't play all their games at the beginning of the season. They've now played 30 games. They're sitting exactly at 500. That division is bad. Uh, But yeah, outside of everyone else, besides those three teams, everyone in the NL has a 500 or worse record on the season. And it looks like the NL Central is pretty much the Cubs to lose at this point, too. Yeah, they're the only team in the NL Central above 500 right now, with the Cardinals and Brewers still languishing a couple games below. Um, Yeah, but yeah, I mean, right now, right, you're, you're seven and eight seeds, so you're two wild cards in the National League. Would be the seventeen and seventeen Colorado Rockies and the fourteen and fifteen Philadelphia Phillies would be your two wild card teams right now. 
if the uh, NL season ended today versus the equivalent seven and eight seeds in the AL would be the 20 and 15 Minnesota Twins and the 18 and 15 Toronto Blue Jays. So there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of a difference there between the top between the, the middle teams in those two leagues. Both teams have their really bad teams and both teams have their really both excuse me. Both leagues have their really bad teams and both leagues have their really good teams. But the AL has more more decent teams in the middle than the NL has is what's becoming obvious. So we will see how that plays out going forward too. Um, but yeah, month to go to the playoffs. It's a sprint, basically three and a half weeks to go until the season ends there. And I think the Twins' last game is September 28th, 29th. And I presume that... Uh, all the other teams is somewhat similar to that. So about four weeks left to go in this sprint of a season. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, Moving on from our MLB to our signature segment, the Vault of Hilarious Contracts. I think you got a a baseball contract to tell us in this, about in this segment, Kyle. Is that right? I do. I wanted to stick with the theme today. You know, we talked a lot about baseball. It was a big day for baseball. We're going to talk about Carlos Beltran and ocular enhancement training. So if you are not familiar with ocular enhancement training, well, I'm going to tell you what it is in this edition of the Vault of Hilarious Contracts. So Carlos Beltran was well aware of ocular enhancement training when he signed his seven-year $119 million contract with the New York Mets back in 2005. Beltran demanded a clause that required the Mets to lease the machine as well as hire an operator for him throughout the duration of his contract, which was granted. Uh, So what is a conditioned ocular enhancer? It is a machine that launches numbered colored tennis balls toward the user at speeds of up to 150 miles an hour. Rather than try and hit the ball like a pitching machine, The user instead attempts to read the number and identify the color on the ball as it passes. Beltron became quite fond of this machine and was convinced the eye training was an advantage when he was at the plate. We are still trying to determine if he used the same technique in Houston or not, but the jury's still out on that one. But he did use ocular enhancement when he played with the Mets and that's that was included in his contract. So that's interesting. I mean, you see things like that in contracts every once in a while. Is he, do you know, is he one of the only players who use that? Is that something that's become more common in recent years? Is it's, he at the front end of a trend or he, is he insane? He was at the front end of a trend. Okay. Well, I, don't, I guess he was at the he was at the front end and it kind of fizzled out a little bit. Players have or they're starting to use more. Act like more technology now instead, like okay. technology training rather than having a ball flung at you at 150 miles an hour. You don't want that, Kyle. Are you not not a fan of having things thrown at you at 150? I miles honestly, an hour? I don't think I'd mind that. I think I'd I would actually like to try it. Would you be able to even see it? Like that ball would be past you before you would even know what happened. It, I mean, I never said that I would be able to see the ball. I might be okay. Correction: I might be able to see the ball, maybe see the color, but seeing the number, nah, no chance. So you I'm don't not like, giving myself a chance on that one. 
you you saying you don't have the uh, the eyesight of a major league? I don't have the eyes, the ocular fortitude of some major league players. Ocular fortitude. Yes, that is what I'm going with. Ocular fortitude. Uh, it works. Not a bad way to describe it. It works. It it does work. That's not a bad way to describe it. I will give you that. Not a bad way to describe it. Well, thank you for informing us on that hilarious contract. I hope you have more because I like this segment and I want it to keep continuing. Um, But there is a segment, there are actually two segments that I like better than the Vultureflare's contracts. And you are now about to get them back to back, starting with our weekly turtle tab. And this is going to be a really short one because I got nothing new to tell you. Still on the taxi squad. Still got passed up on the catching depth chart. Still doesn't look like he's going to be uh, be here anytime soon. Um, I have no idea when he will be here. So um, we will take a look at that. Kyle, stop it. Stop it, Kyle. Kyle is adding poop emojis next to Willens Astadio's turtle symbol on our outline as I'm, I'm trying to do the I'm segment. Saying, I'm saying poop because I'm sad that... Will and Zastadio got passed up. Sure. That's exactly what you were trying to do. You make it very distracting to try to do a segment when the outline I am trying to read keeps moving as I am trying to read off of it. Ah! Anyway, going back to the actual content here. Yeah, uh, no new update on that. We'll keep you informed. <laughs> we will keep you informed on Will and Zastadio. As uh, we go forward, and hopefully we will see him soon on the injury-ravaged... Well, hopefully the Twins stay less injury-ravaged. But on the currently injury-ravaged Twins, we'll see if he's there. Continuing our signature segments, we are going to go to an edition of Mike's Stupid Rules. And we are going to talk about a specific rule about that applies to the most exciting play in baseball. What is the most exciting play in baseball? Can you guess I, that? I, I guess feel like that's subjective. I mean, it is. What would you guess? What would you guess this rule is going to be about? A, a walk-off home run? No. Um, my my favorite? Or, like, because, like, well, an exciting play would be, like, a wild pitch to to win. Okay. You're, like, like, the, the Cubs, Cubs just gave up? Yeah. 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 <laughs> there were two of them yesterday. Both the Mets and the Cubs lost on walk-off wild pitches. Well, you're on the right track with that one, Wyatt. The most exciting play in baseball, stealing home. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about a rule and how a rule about stealing home and how it applies. So if a player does a, a straight steal of home, right? Um, there are two way, There are two things the pitcher can do, right? They can either step off and then throw home, right? Just like a pickoff throw would be, except they're throwing to the next base instead of behind the runner, or they can deliver the pitch as if it was a normal pitch. Now, we're going to talk about if they actually deliver the pitch um, instead of stepping off. So it's, a, so it's a completely legitimate pitch for it to happen whether when a runner is stealing home. And the pitch will have to be called either a ball or a strike because it's a pitch. It has to get called a ball or a strike. So, I mean, normally it's pretty straightforward. But what if that pitch hits the runner as he's crossing home plate? Runner's out. Is he? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't. Wait, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna put in my guess. I don't think the runner is out, and this goes back to a play earlier this season. I don't, I'm not sure if our listeners saw this or not, but a base runner saw a throw coming from the second baseman to try and get him out on a force out at second base, and he put his head in the way of the ball. The ball hit him in the head, dropped to the ground harmlessly, and he was called safe at second. So I'm going to say if the ball hits the player on the way to the plate, he is not out. I, I, so you got me thinking, and I don't, I don't think you're right. I think it depends on whether or not the ball was called a, a ball or a strike, right? So you're on the right, you're on the right track now. So the rule is, um, so the pitch, if it hits the runner and it's a strike, the pitch is still a strike. Now the runner will be safe unless that strike happens to be strike three for the third out of the inning, right? If the pitch uh-huh. that hit the runner is strike three for the third out of the inning, then the run does not count. Otherwise, it's just a normal strike and can still result in a strikeout, and the run will score. The run will count and score in any of those situations, except when it is strike three for the third out of the inning. In that case, the run does not count. But otherwise, if the pitch hits the runner in the strike zone, it's a strike, but the run scores. So, interesting. There you go. Yep. There you go. The, so it's, the it's a little different you know. than a throw because it's a pitch, right? Because the, the ball, right? Yeah, it, it changes things. But yeah, it's wow. interesting. So the, the I, I like that. Yeah, it's an interesting rule. I I saw that one and I was like, ooh, that's a good rule I want to talk about. So that yep. is good. I, I like that one. I like that. Learn something. And, and, and if it hits the um, if it hits the runner, the ball is dead, of course. Yeah. When it hits the runner, so you know if it if it hits the runner and it's a ball and it ricochets into the dugout, right? If there are other runners on base, they don't get to advance, right? The ball yeah. is dead when it hits the runner in that case when a pitch hits the runner. But there you have it. You can safely steal home and still have your run not count if you happen to get hit by the third strike for the final out of the inning. So. I guess technically that is a that would also count going back to a previous theme as another well no you're not called out while standing on on a base in that case right our previous two rules where it was a runner could get called out while standing on a base <laughs> in this case the hitter is getting called out because the runner was to, anyway you see where I'm going with this it sort of relates to our rules in two weeks as well interesting anyway, I digress I like it I digress um. Yeah, that was a fun rule. I thought that was a fun rule. And stealing home doesn't happen enough anymore. People should steal home more often. Back in the old days, I stole home all the time. I would be in favor of more steals of home. But I don't anyway. think you would try to steal home against one of the Royals pitchers who's thrown a 102-mile-an-hour fastball on multiple occasions this season. But if that hits, might be kind of hard I'm to I'm probably steal. safe. You would be safe? Would you get hit by a 102-mile-an-hour fastball to score a run, Kyle? Sure, as long as it didn't hit me in the head. <laughs> there you have it. We can hit Kyle with 102 mile an hour fastballs as long as it's not in the head. That's how I interpreted that. I agree. Keep that in mind for next time I see you, Kyle. Be on the lookout. You got a 102 mile an hour fastball coming for you. I think fortunately enough for me, you can't throw 102 miles an hour. Otherwise, you yourself might be in a, a signature segment in our podcast. I don't follow, but okay. As we, as we did a weekly update on you in the major leagues. 
Oh yeah, if I was a major leaguer, you guys would definitely do a, def- definitely do a segment on me every week. Yeah, that would be fun. I'm gonna do that now just so we have another segment. I'm just go be it. a MLB pitcher. Yeah, I'll, quit, yeah. I'll quit my day job and go be a pitcher. It'll be easy enough. And now that you're finally following along, it's time to give our listeners an update if they're following along with our write that down predictions. Mike, can you hold us accountable this week? Absolutely, I can. We had three predictions come off the board, one each from the three of us. Uh, First one coming off the board was Wyatt. He predicted the Cubs would be in first place, the NL Central, at the end of August. I know technically August isn't over, but it is impossible for the Cubs to lose three and a half games in the standings on one day. So for that, we will give Wyatt a ding, 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 ding. Um, I predicted a couple weeks ago that uh, La Tortuga, Willens Astadio, would be on the Twins roster sometime in the next two weeks. Um, As we heard in our weekly turtle tab, that is not the case. So, And Kyle hopped on the uh, Damian Lillard bandwagon last week in predicting that the Lakers would lose to the Portland Trailblazers in the first round of the playoffs. They they did not do that. They, yeah, they did not. They did not. They, they lost four games to one. So they didn't even win a game after Kyle made that prediction. So, nah. Nah, nah. Maybe I should, maybe I should bet on the Lakers now. Maybe they'll start losing. Maybe games. you should make predictions in sports you actually follow as opposed to sports you really don't follow at all. That might also help. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so. So I'm going to make a prediction this week in a sport that I actually follow. And I'm hopping, on, I'm hopping on the bandwagon after I saw the weekend series between the White Sox and the Royals. I'm going to say that the White Sox will win the AL Central. Um, White Sox win the AL Central. Let me go get you a percentage on that. According to 538, the White Sox have a 24% chance to win the division. And according to Fangraphs, the White Sox have a 36% chance to win the division. So who do you trust more? Um, There I'm going to lean towards um, Fangraphs because they rely less on previous year's performances in their... um, markup which normally for baseball works really well for 538 but in this short season um is probably not as reliable so i'm going to be lean more towards fan graphs as far as how likely it is but either way that's in double slash triple territory right Wyatt? yep what are you thinking double or triple i don't know i mean there's a lot of unknowns i wouldn't be mad with the triple yeah i think that's probably correct is the i would I was going to advocate for a triple since there's yeah. three teams at the top of the AL Central right now, pretty mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. And the White Sox start a big series with the Twins here at Target Field here on Monday night. So that'll be a big series for that. My prediction, I didn't put this on the outline. I just put surprise because I want to hear you guys' live Wait, reaction okay, to this Wyatt. prediction. All right, so surprise. What do we give him, double or triple? Or oh, yeah. <laughs> My prediction is that um, in our fantasy football league, Wyatt will finish in either second to last place or last place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, Now that he knows this, he's going to (laughs) try. I'm Uh, actually going to set my lineup. (laughs) For for the record, we have not drafted yet, so we don't know what his team is or how it is. We draft later this week, so... 
Now that he knows triple, I'm, I'm going to be highly unlikely that he finishes at the bottom now. I agree. With that. I'd go for a home run on that. I'm going uh, to kill it. Yeah, that's what I would uh, say. You guys got to figure it out. I don't get a vote here. Uh, if I do, I vote for home run. I want some more bases. <laughs> okay, fine. Home run. Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and give him a home run. Sure. All right, sounds good. I usually had pretty good draft picks. I just never set my lineup. That's kind of important. Bad at football. Yeah. Except for oh, the times when you're playing me and Mike <laughs> yeah. tells you to set your lineup and then you set your lineup and you have the best week of your life. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get any reminders from me to set your lineup this year now, Wyatt. So. I'll, uh, I'll set my own reminders. It's all right. All right. Sounds good. I'm going to say that Craig Kimbrell will not get a single save, any more saves. He has one save this year, um, the rest of this season. Does he have but, any blown saves? Yeah, one. So he's not your closer. Well, he was practically, to. yeah, he is. Well, he, okay, quote, unquote, yeah. is. And I wanted to say that he won't close, but that's harder to keep track of. And I'll yes, say one. Yeah. So is. this year he's got 10 appearances, one save, an ERA of 10.13, and eight innings pitched. Yep. That's not good. No. For a $43 million three-year contract, it's infuriating. Yeah, that's not good. He has finished six of those ten games, though. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, so he's got one save, one blown save, three holds. On um, a wild pitch, too. That was his blown save. Yeah. And, and he the, appeared in five save situations. The Cubs have 26 season. games left. No, Did you trade for a reliever at the uh, trade deadline? Yeah, they got two southpaws. Who has been getting most of the saves for the Cubs? They've won a lot of games, so. Um, four for Jeremy Jeffress. Jeffries? Jeffress, I Jeffries. think. Jeffries. Jeffries. He's tied uh, with uh, Wick as well, four. Okay. Um, boy, this seems like it's triple territory. I, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, um, this is sort of a crapshoot for me, but yeah, we'll say triple. All right, I'll take it. I think he's going to get a save at some point. And then well, at, at the end of the season, if it's super close, are you going to rely on Kimbrell this year, or are you going to go with someone else? My yeah, guess right. is go with someone else, but that's what's keeping else. me away from a home run. Yeah. No, I think triple's fair. Right, do, we have any, do we have anything from Josh this week? Is he still yep. alive? Yep, he's doing good. Just moved into a new apartment, so he's liking the extra space. Um. Josh predicts that the Brewers will be back at or above 500 by the end of the week. So the Brewers are currently sitting at... They're three um, games under 500. 15 and 18. Their upcoming schedule is one against the Pirates, two against the Tigers, three at the Indians, two at the Tigers, and then three against the Cubs. Wait, that's more than a week. You said two weeks. Yeah, you said oh, two, two weeks. weeks. Sorry, I thought you said a week. My bad. Two weeks, yeah. I feel like they should be able to do that with that schedule. Uh, but Cleveland? That's feasible. Cleveland's better. You could argue that Detroit's better, too. Maybe. I didn't, I didn't say they were yeah. going to do it. Oh, boy. What do you think? Double? I'm thinking double or triple. I, I was double. I was in double territory. Okay, I think I get overruled. I think it's feasible. I think it's feasible, but I think it's still a triple. I think it's tough to make up three games on 500. Anyway, double it is. I get overruled. So, with that, 
that that's the end of the write that down prediction segment. That's all, that's all I have to say about that. Which means we're at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the eighty three eleven cast, episode ninety five. Make sure you tune in next week for episode ninety six. Check out our Instagram at eighty three eleven cast. We post awesome pictures and sports things, so go check that out. Signing off for the eighty three eleven cast. We have your hosts, Kyle Mersh, Kyle Mersh, and Kyle Mersh. We'll talk to you again next week. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones.